This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast. That's what this is from your friends at Books of the Year, isn't it? It is. That That's true. And I have just come to the end of a month where I'm... So I judged this um, Sports Book of the Year prize. Yes. And I read 45 books in a month. That's not possible. It's uh, It was an insane month. What, do you uh, inhale the book? Uh, you definitely do inhale. And How there are can some you do very, that? There are, uh, there are some... There are some beauties within there. Who's going to win? Uh, I obviously don't know. We've literally... So in the last week, we've come up with the long list, and I don't know. I don't think the long list is going to have been published. However, I don't think I'm going to be speaking too much out of school if I say... No, I better not. I better, there's basically, there's a book. In future future podcasts, I'll tell you a book that has absolutely grabbed me this year, and it won't surprise anyone. But, um, but yes, uh, 45 in a month was a little insane. Uh, email from Jack... From Pinner. Simon Matt, I was at an event last night with Louise Doughty, who oh. is, I see, on your podcast soon. In fact, this very podcast. During the chat, she mentioned her love for Le Carre books and that she credits The Spy Who Came In From The Cold as the book that made her want to be a writer. Others on stage said they never got Le Carre. And I must confess, I am one of those too. The writing seems almost too simple and, dare I say it, dull for me to get excited about. Maybe that's the point. Anyway, I wondered what you two thought of Le Carre and if, like Louise, you might be able to shed some light on what I'm missing. Um, well, actually, Jack, I asked, I put this, I was going to put it to Louise in the first part of the podcast and then forgot. So it's going to be in the second part of the podcast. Yeah. The beginning of the second podcast that we do with Louise. Do you ask her about that? I think I've only read one Le Carre. I'm a, I feel Which very... One? Spy came in. Okay, I've read Tinker Tailor, and I, I I read that because of the movie. I really like the movie, so I picked up the book. So I do not consider myself an expert. Yeah, I don't know what Jack means by by when he says dull, and I wonder whether that means sort of workaday, means a bit banal. In other words, this isn't Jason Bourne, this isn't James Bond, this is the sort of the admin side of Spy, and I really like that element. There and there's. There's parts of that in Louise's book that we're going to be talking about, also in Damascus Station, which I really loved um, earlier this year. That's very, you know, absolutely the polar opposite to a, a James Bond book. So I wonder whether uh, that's what he means. Um, this from Professor David on Twitter, as we have decided we're not going to say X. Uh, really looking forward to reading Louise Doughty's new novel. Have either of you read Anne Enright's new one yet called The Wren, The Wren? No. No, I haven't. I've had 45 books in a month. Souls. But next time, yeah, uh, but it was very good. It's a yes/no question. The answer is no. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with a slightly more complex question, uh, books of the year yahoo.com, Twitter, books of the, at books of the year, on Instagram and Threads. And Threads. How is Threads going? Well, is I'm it? trying to do more Threads because uh -huh. if the man baby yeah. makes us pay for Twitter, then Correct. I'm not going to. Oh, oh, oh I am. Gone. I am out. Not giving him any of my money. None of my cash. In which case, I'll going. be okay. I'm. I'm doing more on threads. 
Yeah. So let's see some of uh, some of our listeners going on to Threads and Correct. telling yes. us stuff about Threads. Yes, yes. Uh, so we're, and we're at Pick Any Page. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk to best-selling author, playwright, screenwriter, the fabulous Louise Doughty. Louise Doughty has joined us uh, in the studio. She has a new book out. Obviously, she doesn't just pop by just to say hello. Sadly not. I mean, we'd love it if she did. The new book is A Bird in Winter. How are you doing, Louise? I'm doing very well, thank you. you must... I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's very nice, very nice to see you. It's always a moment if there's a Louise Doughty book. And Matt is now going to describe the cover. Yes. So the the front cover, well, it's leaden skies take up the about two-thirds of the book from the top. And then we see a figure walking across a very misty, uh, desolate landscape at the bottom that, frankly, it, could, it might as well be on the moon. But I think me and Simon were talking about it about 10 minutes before we started recording. And we think it might be Iceland where that is where that is. Yeah. Or were that photo supposed to be? Would that be well, right? Well, it's supposed to be sui generis. It could be Scotland or Norway or Iceland, all of which feature in the novel. Indeed they do. And so we've got this hooded figure walking across and then Louise Doughty, a bird in winter, in block white capitals, although each letter of, of that, your name and the title, a, a little part of the letter is, is shrouded as if it's coming out of the mist itself. And then Sunday Times bestselling author of Apple Tree Yard at the bottom. What's also worth mentioning is because it actually feels very significant. Is Matt says a hooded figure, and that's exactly right. When you look at the hooded figure, she's wearing a kind of a, like a multicoloured anorak. Yeah, you know. So this this isn't your assassin who's stalking across open terrain. Uh, this is the bird, and she is in winter. Introduce us to Birdie. Well, Bird is a nickname for a woman called Heather, and at the very beginning of the novel, you meet her in an office block in Birmingham, sitting around a glass-topped table with her colleagues, having a meeting, and it couldn't be more mundane. And as you come in at the very beginning of the novel, something has been said in the meeting, and Bird is rising from her chair, and she's saying to herself, it's no more than 30 paces to the lift. Whatever has just been said... She now knows that she has to get out of the building and get out fast, and she goes on the run. She heads to New Street Station, she gets a Glasgow train, she disguises herself en route, and then her journey takes her across Scotland, the Western Isles, over to Inverness, then up to Thurso, Orkney, Shetland, and she crosses the North Sea illegally into Norway, and she goes on the run in the Nordic countries. And during the course of her flight, you find out who she is, you find out what she's on the run for and, crucially, what that meeting was about and what was revealed. What was it that made her stand up from the desk and, and hit for the stairs? And the idea for that journey and going on the run and the character... So her real name is Heather. Yep. Um, where did she come from? Did she come before the idea of the she woman did. on the run? Um, I had that scene in my head for quite some time. I'd always wanted to write about a woman on the run, but I couldn't work out what she was running from, which is a bit of a kind of handicap, really, because the reader does expect to be told at some stage. And that scene of a woman in a very mundane, mundane situation suddenly realising that her life was in danger, that stuck with me for ages. And I wrote the scene and I started to write her flight and I still didn't really know who she was or what she was running from. 
And then before the pandemic, I visited Norway and Iceland and I fell in love with both countries. They're so beautiful. And I decided that that was where my character was heading. Then a little thing called a pandemic <laughs> came along and the irony of writing a story about a, novel, a woman on the run uh, while we were all locked inside our own houses did not escape me. Um, so once things opened up again and we could travel, I decided that really the only thing to do was to go on the run myself and to follow Heather's journey. So I, I got a rucksack okay. and a beanie hat. <laughs> I went to Birmingham and then I followed her journey and, and worked out how she would get uh, on your own? to the North Sea. On my own, completely on my own, staying one night at a time in guest houses. The one thing I knew is she couldn't use a car because of automatic number plate recognition. You can't get 10 miles down the road without being picked up if you go on the run in a car. So I knew she would be on trains, buses, ferries. She would be on foot. I went hiking in some remote areas of Scotland. And it was pretty spooky when the phone signal disappeared. And I went to Skye. I went to Plockton, where a crucial scene in the book is set, and then over to Inverness and up to Thurso, which is at the very, very top of the British mainland, and on to Orkney. I mean, one of the most enjoyable things about the book is this journey that you take us on. And all those different places that you've mentioned, I think this is going to make a lot of people go, I quite like to do some of this tour. I don't want, not the unpleasant bits <laughs> and not the vomity bits and not the scary bits. But you write, you clearly did fall in love with these places. And I think that's why a Bird in Winter tour Sounds like a good idea. It does sound like a good idea, doesn't it? But I I also fell in love with the idea of um, being somewhere where nobody knew who I was and the idea of being on the run, moving from place to place, never stopping for any length of time, always trying to stay one step ahead. And obviously I, I didn't have anyone on my tail, as uh, Bird does in the book. We come to realise that she's being pursued and it's a race against time. Can she get out of the country before they catch up with her? And I didn't have that. But it wasn't hard to imagine that, particularly when you're in a remote place and you've got a heavy rucksack on your back, so you can't run very fast. And I'm not a particularly brave or adventurous sort of person. So imagining what it would be like uh, to know that someone, possibly more than one person, was trying to hunt you down, that, that wasn't difficult. I um I love this book, uh, Louise, and it's it's really rare that I get hooked by a book really early. Normally, it's like sort of fifty pages in. For the first fifty pages, I'm sort of trusting the author, and then after that, I sort of like, oh right now I really like it. But I can tell you, I can tell you the page number when I when I was absolutely hooked. And um, the best sort of analogy I've got for this is a football analogy, which is you can. There's a sort of saying in football that um, you can't win the title in the first five pages, in the first five games, but you can absolutely lose it. And I know there are plenty of books that, within the first few pages, I've gone, I'm not, I'm not going to like this. But it's really rare that very early on you you find that you love one. And it was on page eleven that I went. Right, I am definitely in. And what happens on page eleven? I was just going to have a look. Is is um, so you've you've described this meeting where she where she gets up and she walks walks out. And I'm intrigued by that. But the bit where I go, okay, now I'm in, is she goes and visits her dad, and her dad is in a in a hospital ward, and her mum's there at the bedside, and then her mum walks away. So so Heather is alone with her dad, 
and we've already been told that her dad is suffering from um from dementia and her dad says if d467 doesn't make contact within 12 hours we need to notify all personnel and i went oh right okay this is really sad they, obviously he's he's suffering a bit from dementia and i turned the page page 12 now onto page 12 and heather leaves the bedside and says I wanted someone who knew and cared about him to deal with this, but I followed procedure, dialed, gave the code, followed by my identifying details, and got a juicy officer. And I was like, oh, I'm in now. She's a spy. He's a spy. I'm up for this. We're going to have a lot of fun on this. So so I suppose my question there is, how much thought are you giving to what is the point where I'm actually going to sink my teeth into the reader and make sure I don't let go for the hundreds of pages that follow? Well, that's a really fascinating question because as an author, it's incredibly hard to predict the point at which that will happen. And in fact, the section you're just talking about, I was actually quite worried about because it opens with Heather getting up and going on the run for the meeting. And then we have this flashback where we learn more about her childhood and her somewhat mysterious father. And then the moment where she goes to visit him in hospital. And I remember thinking distinctly, does this really belong here? Should I be putting it this early in the book? Should we just be following her to New Street Station immediately? Should it come later? There's a big danger when you're writing a novel of something called exposition, which is where you're explaining the novel to yourself as you write. And if you leave in too much exposition, you can really slow down your, your opening. You can make it quite sluggish. And in fact, there was a lot of stuff with the father that I cut. I mean, it's around 100,000 words long. I cut about 30,000 words. And, you know, that scene, it was touch and go. So I'm just over the moon that that was the point at which you got hooked because it is a flashback. And putting flashbacks in early is always a high-risk strategy. It absolutely worked in this case. Absolutely did with me. But what's fascinating is that people hear what Matt said and all of that is true and it's very exciting. You go, okay, fine. But it's in a way, it's not that book. So, yes, it's about British intelligence. Yes, it's about secrecy and privacy and what secrets people have. But it's not like any other... It's not like an agent on the run. You know, this is not mm. Jason Bourne. That, it's, it's, not, it's not that book. But you must... Have, in fact, in the acknowledgements at the end, you talk about your contacts in British intelligence. So you clearly wanted to get all of that... You know, she's not like a frontline spy, but clearly what's happening in the background, the admin side of it is was very important. Yes. And I mean, that's something you realise. Obviously, there's a limit to which you can research spying. For some reason, those people are quite secretive. I don't know why. They're quite resistant to writers coming along with notebooks and asking them lots of questions. Odd. Um, But, you know, it's a branch of the civil service. And like any other branch of the civil service, there's a huge amount of bureaucracy. And so whenever we see a spy film or read a spy novel, or um, whether it's Jason Bourne or a John le Carre, what we tend to forget is the immense amount of bureaucracy that has to support any field agent. And in fact, Heather, she's in her 50s in the novel, she has only had a very brief period as a field agent. She, she's a bureaucrat. She's a pen pusher, which was deliberate because I, I wanted to make it clear that when she goes on the run, she's at a considerable amount of risk. I mean, she's competent and and she's brave and she's resourceful, but she's not somebody who's done this for a living. 
Um, she's worked in an office in a pencil skirt and, and court shoes. Yeah, She has had a short spell in the British Army because I needed to make her physically competent on a most basic level. So she's had she's left in disgrace after six years. But uh, you're absolutely right. And the bureaucracy behind spying is something I think that's very rarely written about. Um, also, female friendship is at the heart of the story. Can you just talk a little bit about... Because, yes, it's Birdie. She's on the run. That's the heart of the story. But also she has a friendship at the heart of the story as well. She does. So when she's in the British Army, she forms a very close friendship with another young officer called Flavia. And it's the 1970s. So they're not at Sandhurst. Women weren't allowed to go to Sandhurst at that point. They're training in the Women's Royal Army Corps. And they have a very intense friendship. They both end up leaving the army in difficult circumstances and their friendship persists, but then their paths take very different routes. Uh, Flavia goes off and she becomes a single parent. Um, Heather goes to work in the city. This is before she's recruited to the secret... Shall I repeat that bit? Heather goes to work in the city. This is before she's recruited to the secret services. And at one, at some point, there's a fallout. And I really wanted to write about how painful it is to fall out with your best mate. I think there's been a lot of, you know, everybody knows how painful it is to break up with a spouse or a lover. But actually, the falling out between friends can be incredibly painful and somehow quite inexplicable. And then you reach a point where nobody wants to apologise and then it all goes horribly wrong. And then, of course, the relationship with Flavia does come into the present day story when she goes in the run. But you're right, it's, it's the most significant relationship that Heather has in the book. And what's it, I hope this isn't sort of giving too much away. The reader might expect one of two things. One, their mates. Two, their lovers. And the truth is, neither of those. No, they exist in that grey area between which I think is a lot more common than we talk about. I think you can have intensely romantic feelings for a friend, uh, even if it doesn't tip over into a sexual relationship. I think that's far more common. I think relationships are nuanced and detailed and they're also changeable. And I was really interested in writing a very close friendship into that grey area. And I, I really, I'm a huge admirer of Elena Ferrante. And in fact, when I introduced the novel um, to my publisher, when I pitched it to them, I said, imagine if John le Carré and Elena Ferrante had a secret affair, what would their love child look like? Rather grandiose claim for your own work. Um, <laughs> But I, I was aiming for something that although it had this plot of a woman who works in the intelligence services on the run, it is really about her emotional life and her intense friendship with Flavia. My instinct is that most people when they're reading this book, well, basically I'm going to project myself onto most people reading this book as, as to how... It's not about you. It's all about me, really, is uh, how they will feel uh, reading it uh, about the situation that Bird finds herself in. And what, that's a roundabout way of me saying I found myself incredibly paranoid whilst reading the book because Bird is paranoid, sometimes for very good reason. But it's basically, she's on the run, so she's thinking, is that kid with the hooded top, is he following me? Is that couple who inexplicably are wearing a suit uh, in this... A tiny village miles from... Why on earth would you be wearing a suit miles from anywhere? That doesn't make sense. They must be after me. And without giving anything away about the ending, a central character may well have been uh, acting against Heather the whole time. Was that was that a sort of a, a frame of mind that you were wanting to create in, in our minds as we're reading this, this idea of paranoia? Very much so. And, I mean, it's not hard to imagine 
how paranoid real spies must get because it's their job to be suspicious. It's their job to look around them. It's their job to second guess. Um, and to to think about the ways in which that would feed into your ordinary life was not very hard. I, I did have a cup of tea with a former director general of MI5. I can talk about him because he's retired. All right. And he said I could thank him publicly. So it's Lord Evans of Weirdale. And uh, that was, uh, he suggested we met in a hotel lobby. And I, I wondered whether he, he was kind of channeling his old life there in a cafe in a hotel lobby and just before I left the house, I, I threw on a raincoat and belted it. And I got there and I did say, oh, no. looks like I'm auditioning. You know, and luckily, he had a sense of humour, you know, and he said, oh, how long have you got? Um, but I was sitting there talking to a former director general of MI5 in a hotel lobby wearing a raincoat. And what was interesting is that he obviously was going to tell me absolutely nothing. <laughs> and I knew he wasn't going to tell me anything. And he knew I knew that he wasn't yeah. going to tell me anything. So it was really a question of observing each other. I just wanted to see what he was like. And obviously, it was, it's been his job to observe people all his life. And the habits of that constant observation, it's not hard to imagine what that does to a personality. And I'm very, very glad to hear I did it to you, too. That, is, that's made me very happy. Is is the sweeping the room, did that come from him? Just, just explain what sweeping the room is. Sweeping the room is when uh, somebody, a spy or someone else, goes into a room and they do a very quick assessment. So, OK, there were 11 people in this cafe there's two women over there. There's a man sitting there with his back to the wall. Um, that's obviously a sign that they're being watchful. There's a couple of people with a toddler and they're looking for who might be a risk, who might be a counter agent, who might be also observing the cafe. And of course, we can all do that when we go into a cafe. But the trick to do it is without anybody realising you're doing you're doing it. And that's obviously one of the primary skills that spies have to learn. I'll tell you, the, re the reason I ask that is because the first time you bring up sweeping the room, you uh, um, Heather has just arrived in Carlisle. Now, I used to live in Carlisle. It's where I met my wife. I lived there for five years. And so when you describe her coming out of the station, turning turning left, going past the Citadel, onto the pedestrianised area, and then going into that cafe... I know that cafe. We used to go to that cafe a lot. The service was appalling. I can only hope the service is better now. But that's where she felt. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to go into this cafe and do the sweep the room and have a look at all the all the people coming in and see who's after me then? Well, that's brilliant. I'm really pleased. I've never actually met anyone who's lived in Carlisle. There you go. So. Well, like, whether I'm number one then. Yes. No, I loved it as well. For I, I, Again, that was another point where I was punching the air, loving the fact that we've got Carlisle finally into one of our books. It's a few lines from page 75. I'm ready to move on to my next stop, even though, or perhaps because, the thought of it, waiting for me has been like long, wavy grass and a deep, cold river and thick, oozy mud and a big, dark forest and a swirling, whirling snowstorm at this point i'm thinking this is very familiar can't go round it how does it go can't go under it oh no so this is we're going on a bear hunt i don't think michael rosen gets a credit at the end no but, but i did actually ask him if it say, was okay do you, do you have to ask permission I, I, for that i did i mean um obviously my publisher faber like all publishers are, are very careful about that sort of thing they said you do have to ask michael rosen and i said i'm sure he won't mind um and i did ask him and he was very sweet about it and said no of course i don't mind and also that it's based on a kind of old legend the story anyway, you know, it's not as if he has copyright. There is a thing called fair use where you can quote a certain amount. And I mean, certainly 
the quotations that I use as epitaphs at the beginning of each part of the book. There's one from John Le Carre. Um, there's one from Tom Burgess, who wrote a book called Kleptopia. And there's another um, from Rogue Mail by Jeffrey Household. And with each of those, I did check with the author or with the estate of the author, even though actually you don't have to have permission. But it, it seems to me kind of common politeness uh, to get permission. This, um, I've got three folded pages here, which I wanted to bring up. And this is very much a sidebar. It's not really enormously relevant to the plot. But you talk about um, Heather's mother, who's passed on, uh, and she's clearing out her mum's house. And many people listening to this will have cleared out a parent's house. Uh, and you say this, from my admittedly limited observations of family life, it appeared you were destined to accumulate a mountain of objects that would peak as the children reached young adulthood. That pinnacle achieved, you were then destined to spend, folded the page over very badly, the next two decades shedding the objects that you'd spent the previous two two decades collecting. Unless, like my mother, you'd answer. So, and I thought, that's written by someone who's done it. Oh, absolutely. That the, was the very whole, heartfelt. You know, the accumulation and then getting rid of. Yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, my brother and sister and I had to clear out uh, the house we'd grow up in, which is a bungalow in the East Midlands. It wasn't even that big a house, but our parents had lived there for 50, 60 years. And the thing about the modern houses, which we certainly don't have in our Victorian conversion, is a huge amount of storage and a massive attic, the whole footprint. And we, we found things like old tricycles up there. It was extraordinary. Um, we always thought our parents were quite neat and tidy, but it turned out it was just all behind the cupboard doors. They'd yeah. not thrown I a just single thought it was away. a fantastic observation, you know, that it's a, an observation that my wife and I have sort of made a number of, you know, you spend many years accumulating and then you get to the point where, as you start to discover, you go, nobody wants your stuff. Nobody yeah. wants it. You know, my parent, my kids might want a couple of books and a record, maybe, and then then the rest is going to go away. Absolutely. Well, it's sobering to think, isn't it? I mean, we're getting a bit philosophical here. I think it's here, called but... Swedish Death Cleaning, I think is what it is. Is it really? Yes. What it's oh, what a great title that is. <laughs> but we're, we're born as, you know, small naked babies, and then we... We go out as as old naked people. We don't bring any possessions with us, and we don't take them with us. So yeah, this is getting very prevalent. It is. It is. It no. is getting. <laughs> and I'm certainly not. I'm extremely down to earth. Occasionally, there's a. Sometimes this happens in movies, where you there's a little speech that a character makes, and you think, okay, this is the author's statement. This is this is the bit they want us to take us away. You know, and. Um, Sometimes it's a lead actor, sometimes it's not a lead actor, but it's just a line you think, okay, that's that's very much. So there's, there's just one observation that you make about Norway. And I'm thinking, okay, this is what Louise wants to tell us. Um, Nobody ever steals anything because this is Norway. And because when your population is well fed and cared for, they tend not to steal from each other so often. Funny that. <laughs> and I thought, that's Louise telling us something about Britain. Yes, yes, it is. In comparison with Scandinavia. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, Scandinavia is a recent discovery for me. I hadn't been there till quite late in life. Um, but one of my children lived in Denmark for a year during the pandemic. And I've now been to most of the Scandinavian countries. And it's very simple. You know, you, you tax people quite high and then you make sure people are well looked after. And, and, and guess what? The result is low crime rates. And uh, people do leave their possessions out and about a lot more. Yes. Can I just say the ideal thing, the perfect thing? I happen to know this through personal experience. You're right. Scandinavia, high tax. That's true. 
good system of welfare, that's the payoff, unless you work for the UN, in which case you pay no tax. Anyone who works for the UN anywhere in the world pays no income tax. Well, that is a top tip. There you go. So, top job in the world. (laughs) Do they want any novelists, do you think? I think it's time the UN had a writer in residence, (laughs) don't you? I mean, well, it's interesting. that So Simon picked out the Norway bit as being, this is when I think Louise is speaking to us. And I picked out, there's a different part where I went, okay, I think this is you. And it's about, because uh, you've already mentioned how this the sort of secret service is a branch of the civil service. And you have, um, you have Bird talking to someone very, very late on in the book about public service. And... And I'm just going to quote it very quickly. I have always believed in duty, that at the most basic level, we were here on this earth in order to serve, in order to stop bad things happening to people who've done nothing wrong. Sometimes we use duty as an evasion. We tell ourselves we are serving a higher cause, when in fact we're using it as an excuse for not looking after those closest to us. And the reason why I I wondered whether this was Louise talking to me is because... Civil service in the last few months, um, probably year, has been uh, is basically people have been ha- politicians mainly those in power, those who decided to put a stick of dynamite under the economy and blow it up, uh, then decided that it's actually all down to the blob. It's down to civil service. Uh, Truss and Johnson. Yes, in, indeed, yeah. indeed. So I wondered whether that was Louise talking to us about public service and the nobility of that. Well, yes, is the short answer. I mean, this is the point about when I mention a bureaucracy, you know, a government cannot function without a bureaucracy. The idea that civil servants were out to impede politicians is absurd. I think, you know, I mean, civil servants are people who have gone into public service. Hello, the clue is in the title. And the idea that you could have a government without them Um, is obviously absurd because the big decisions, the speech um, at the podium in front of 10 Downing Street, that's a minuscule bit of what goes on. A government is by necessity um, full of bureaucracy and a functioning democracy is full of things like, you know, free and fair judiciary, a functioning criminal justice system, healthcare, a welfare state. You know, democracy can't exist without all these things supporting it. So I think the the degradation of the idea of public service has been one of the most distressing developments of recent politics and also the cynicism that induces in the public. And you can't blame the public when they see that elected politicians are apparently not in it to serve the public, um, but simply to make money for themselves and their friends. You know, you can't blame people for being cynical or not voting or voting in their own self-interest if the people at the so-called top of the tree are doing the same. And how we begin to reverse that is probably above my pay grade. And you've, you've acted here by putting a pen pusher, putting someone who's on the admin side as the, as the hero of this book right at the centre. Yes, and certainly that wasn't a conscious choice uh, when I was actually doing it, but it was something that definitely involved during the course of the book. And Heather is a patriot. I mean, she's not... You know, I'm I'm a novelist, you know, I live in North London. It's sort of wall to wall, you know, the liberal elite, I think we're called. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Heather is not that. She's grown up in Coventry. Her father um, has been a spy. He survived uh, the Coventry Blitz during the war. 
She's somebody who's gone into the British Army with a very strong sense of patriotism. She's certainly not an, an ordinary liberal left character, but she is somebody who believes in public service and wants to do the right thing. There's another point in the book, which is actually the bit I thought you were going to quote, where she says, it's not that I'm so much for my government, it's just that I'm passionately against governments who want to lock up their own citizens or torture or murder them. Um, and, and that's her moral philosophy. But of course, the corollary of that is, do people like that who consider themselves public servants sometimes use that as an excuse to be, if you like, a bit more emotionally distant with their nearest and dearest and the people around them? One of the other, I don't know, it's like a fissure maybe in the book. I don't know. One of the, as well as female friendship, one of the other things it made me think about is consequences when things go wrong. You know, lots of lives go wrong. You know, a, a relationship that goes wrong, a job that goes wrong. Um, they say that homeless people, you know, we're all like three decisions away from being homeless. You know, it, it doesn't take much for your life to end up in a completely different place. And... To an extent, that's what seems to happen to Heather, really, that she there's a couple of things that that happen and then she does the wrong thing and then all of a sudden she's on the run. Everything seems quite fragile. Yes, and I do believe that very strongly, that thing you say about three decisions. I think it's absolutely right. And Heather does say to herself when she goes on the run, um, you know, she expresses some disbelief at one point where she's sleeping rough. She's thinks that it was literally only hours ago that she was a functioning member of society in a meeting in an office block. And yet, once you are outside society, it's very hard to claw your way back in. And the ways, particularly because the ways in which society operates against people who have fallen out, um, once you're outside the pot, uh, it's hard to get back in. And Heather realises that, and she realises how much she's taken for granted. Um, I did do some research into what were the ways in which a quite ordinary, functioning, competent person could get themselves into real financial difficulty, um, because that happens more often than people realise. You know, you make a decision to buy a house with a bridging loan or you sell a house and then prices drop and you can't afford. There are many, many ways in which it's much easier than you think. You lose your job, a marriage breaks up, and um, you know people who are homeless on the streets are there for a huge variety of reasons, some of which are very ordinary. The real villain of your story is the estate agent who advises yes. her about, about what she can do, what she can't do. I just want to return to the sense of place which you bring as much to Birmingham and Carlisle as you do to Iceland and Norway. There's I don't think there is a person who's ever been to Iceland that doesn't bang on about it all the time, <laughs> boring everybody senseless about what an amazing place it is. And I've been there a couple of times. And it, I know, you know, <laughs> but you know, you this is there's a big section of the book in Iceland, and I think you do refer to it as um, being like the moon and the lava fields. And when we were there, there was a there was a film crew that were doing a sequence that was supposed to be on the moon. You know, if you want a, a bit that's on the moon. Uh, you go to Iceland. But it is an intoxicating place, isn't it? It's really otherworldly. Uh, I couldn't believe it was only two hours' flight uh, from here. I'm used to the idea that if you want a huge amount of difference, you have to go on a long-haul flight. And then, 
you just go straight north for a couple of hours and there you are in this amazing landscape. It is like the moon, these lava fields, the glaciers that just tumble down onto the black lava sand and the ways in which everywhere you look, some sometimes it seems the whole world has gone monochrome because there's the black sand and the black earth and the white snow and the glaciers and the white sky, and then you see a red church roof sticking up out of it. And of course, it has volcanoes as well, crucially, and one does feature in the book. So it really is a land of fire and ice. It's a volcanic island. And uh, I had never been anywhere quite like there before. I remember going for a, going for a walk slash hike kind of thing through the, through the countryside. Uh, and it was very it was very spectacular. And then we could see a stream uh, ahead. And then we realized that actually there was steam coming from the stream because it was boiling. Uh, and you go, oh, right, yes, of course, it's a volcanic country. And this is happening uh, all the time. Also, everyone you meet is an author. <laughs> yeah. Every single person in Iceland writes. Even their prime minister right. is yes. an author. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. They love their books. They do love their books. And I suppose those long winters, yes. you know, plenty of reading time. But uh, yes, they're, they're very good. A bit of travel advice, though. Don't, as we heard people still do, go to Iceland for a stag weekend because the price of alcohol is through the roof deliberately because the long nights, they have a big alcohol problem. So, you know, this is, it's a beautiful place to go yeah. to. Just don't go if you want to drink a lot of alcohol because it will set you back <laughs> a few hundred pounds for one round. It really will. It's an incredibly expensive country. That's the catch. Um, go, You can go for a mini break and you'll spend as much as you would have done on a two-week holiday anywhere else. The second time I went there, oh, sorry, this is very, but you'll go. See, I mentioned <laughs> everyone's going to bang on about it. There were, five, there were five of us. We went for a pizza. Food is pretty rubbish in Iceland, to be honest. <laughs> Everything's imported and I don't want pickled herring. Thank you very much. Anyway, family of five, Went for a pizza. Every pizza was 25 quid. Yeah. So we're drinking water, pizza. Uh, still, that's 125 pounds wow. for, uh, for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> did, you not, did you not eat puffin? I ate puffin. No. Do you know what little pr- baby puffins are called? Oh, this is horrible. Oh, they're, they're, called, they're called puffettes. Really? That I know. Sounds... I might have eaten a puffet. Puffettes on toast. I know. I'm just no. a terrible human that's being, awful. obviously. <laughs> but, but it's okay if it was research. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, so... What is the future of A Bird in Winter? I mean, obviously, so it's there. Uh, it's a novel. You have had very much, you've had a lot of success with uh, adaptations of your books for the small screen. What happens to A Bird in Winter? Well, it's in development, as the famous phrase goes. In development can mean anything between it's going to be a major motion picture or a huge streamer series and you'll be paying off your mortgage or absolutely nothing will happen yes. other than people will talk about it for 12 years. How and long did nothing... Apple Tree Yard take to get to the screen? Well, Apple Tree Yard was actually incredibly quick. Um, it was from publication to screen was about three and a half years, and that's very, very fast because obviously you've got to find a writer to adapt it. They've got to do episode one. That's got to be kicked around the room endlessly. But then you still have to go to a broadcaster and get the broadcaster to develop it. And with A Bird in Winter, we, we have a production company and we do have a broadcaster on board, but you know, there's still the adaptation to do. And crucially, a big star you know, to get something greenlit. You really, so I, I have been playing fantasy casting. I really, oh gosh, well, there's so many. But I mean, Kate Winslet, I can yeah. see her yeah, yeah, running definitely. across the Scottish yeah. countryside. 
She would be brilliant. Emily Blunt, I'm a big oh, fan wow. of yeah. as well. I mean, the, you hardly know where to start. One of the reviews mentioned Nicola Walker. She would also be very yeah. good. She'd been in a lot. I think Kate um, Winslet is spot on. Yeah, yeah, she yeah. would be top, wouldn't she? If there's Mer- anybody listening to this who knows Kate, <laughs> please give her a bird in winter and tell her how much I love her. Mayor of Easttown was so fantastic. She yeah. was so That terrific. was brilliant. That was top television. Um, so there'll be a, a, a further chat with Louise in our new podcast, which will be along in a few days' time with the Q&A. But for the moment, Louise Doughty, thank you very much. Thank you.